Hello, and welcome to the Heathen's Journey podcast. I'm your host, Siri Vincent Clough, and I'm so glad you're here. This is the show where I explore heathenry through a queer lens. We will be talking about traditional witchcraft, runes, folklore, and so much more. Join us, won't you, as we journey to the ends of the Nine Realms and back. Hello, and welcome to the Heathen's Journey podcast. I am very excited to be back with this interview. I have been sitting on this one for a little bit, and it's just been time that has kept me from uh, editing this podcast and getting it out to you all. But today's guest is Laura Valeda Vesta. I will tell you a little bit more about her and her work in just a moment. First, I have some announcements. So first up, my Radical Runes course, which is my signature course on um, queering the runes, is happening again this summer. This time it's happening via Catland Books in Brooklyn. Um, It is six straight weeks of rune study, uh, deep interpretation of the runes, um, and kind of bringing runes into a modern feminist and queer perspective. Um, So if you're interested in that, I have a link in the show notes and it'll it'll be a blast. I'm just I'm really excited for this round. I've been doing some edits, you know, looking back at my uh larger workbook that you will get as a part of this class and just yeah, really adding a lot more to it. I also have an announcement that is a little bit um off kilter. So I am actually opening an online apothecary. The apothecary will hold, you know, items, tarot decks, um, anointing oils, candles, and so many different tools for your own uh, practice and to further your own practice. So this is something that I've actually been debating since I opened Northern Lights Witch and because we have so many amazing occult bookstores here in Minneapolis, I figured, nah, I don't really want to do that. But I have learned that through having the podcast and through having, you know, a, a more national following, not just Minneapolis, that people are looking for tried and true materials to use in ritual. And that is what all of these will be. So look for some more announcements in terms of what I will be stocking and when you will be able to purchase them. The best way for you to kind of stay in touch with the apothecary is actually to sign up for my newsletter. So now I have in my newsletter, I usually send one newsletter every month. And that newsletter is usually like a a mini essay from me and then some upcoming events and such. And then this time I've actually edited the landing page so you can opt in to apothecary updates. So you will get an email, you know, when the shop launches and you will get an email, you know, emails featuring products to use. So if you're interested in that, there is a link in the show notes. I definitely recommend it. So let's talk a little bit about today's guest. Lara Veleda Vesta, who is an MFA, is an artist, author, storyteller, and educator transforming chronic illness into a path of healing and reclaiming. 
She is the author of the Moon Divas Guidebook and the Moon Divas Oracle, illustrator of the Moon Divas Oracle Cards, and newly released Wild Soul Runes, Reawakening the Ancestral Feminine. Her research interests include ancestral connection, myth-telling, and disability as initiation, and she is currently creating an illustrated guide to death transitions. Her path of myth, folk magic, and ancestor lore and ritual practice is shared through classes at the Wild Soul School. We are also hosting a giveaway of Lara's book, Wild Soul Runes, on Instagram. Head over to my page for details on how to enter. My username is northern.lights.witch. And before we can get into this juicy conversation, I have just a quick word from our sponsors. Needfire Wellness and Apothecary is a one-stop shop for all of your folk magic needs. They are committed to offering high-quality supplies, information, and learning experiences for magic practitioners. The Needfire team believes that magic practice is an internally enriching and transformative endeavor that can look very different dependent on the practitioner. They make every effort to offer a range of knowledge and products for the practical witch, magician, or otherwise. In addition to their domestic workshops, Needfire has collaborated with Johannes Gordbeck, author of Trolldome, Spells and Methods of the Norse Folk Magic Tradition, to offer immersive travel experiences and magic workshops in Sweden starting in autumn 2021. This is a fantastic shop, and I am so glad to collaborate with them. You can use offer code HEATHENJOURNEYPODDEN to get 10% off in their online apothecary. Get yourself a blend of Swedish incense, a new tarot deck, a hagstone, some herbs, and so much more. Head on over to needfirewellness.com to uh, get your supplies today. And as always, make good magic. Welcome to the Swamp Witches! Swamp Witch Stephanie is an online magical herbal apothecary for all your darkest desires. Swamp Witch Stephanie started in 2018 with a line of anointing oils enchanted by the Swamp Queen herself. Stephanie has been studying the Western occult tradition, American folklore, British and American traditional witchcraft, and historical herbalism for over 10 years, and has brought her knowledge and expertise to each of these handcrafted all-natural oils. And this year, Swamp Witch Stephanie has launched a new line of ensorcelled skincare products. And she would know. Being the drag persona of Marcus Ironwood, Stephanie knows the importance of keeping your skin soft as a babe's bottom. Stephanie is ready to share her magic with Heathen's Journey listeners with 20% off your order at swampwitchstephanie.com. Just use the offer code HEATHEN for your discount. Keep it swampy. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So um, before I hit record, I told you this, but I have been following your work for several years now, and it is 
absolutely wonderful and has deeply influenced my own um, working with the runes. So um, it's truly a pleasure and an honor to have you here. Oh, thank you. Well, that's, it's an honor to be here and to feel that, you know, in the weird we're connected and influencing is always just such a gift. Yeah. So um, we are talking today about your new book that just came out Mm -hmm. um, called Wild Soul Runes. Mm -hmm. Um, So We'll talk a lot about the book throughout this interview, but why don't we just start with um, how did you find the runes or did the runes find you? (laughs) I love that question because it implies that you already know the answer, which is (laughs) (laughs) uh, that, of course, the runes, the runes found me. when I was a little girl, I, my mother had a pendant that she'd brought back from her father's hometown in Norway. And it has runes on it. On one side, it's a pewter pendant. On one side is a spinning wheel. And on the other side, there's runic writing. And as a child, I was fascinated by it. I didn't know what they were. I had no idea. Um, and But I wore it all the time in high school. It was just a magical talisman to me. And then in college, I actually paid someone to translate it for me. And it's very, it's very benign. It says Lake, River, Mountain, Norway. It's probably, you know, like a souvenir piece. But um But that was my first encounter with the runes, and I didn't realize what they were until much later. I, of course, encountered the, um, in the divination section, I saw the runes and kind of the rune kits that come with the book. And I think I even bought a set for my brother before I started working with them. But then in 2012, I encountered them again in this in this adult life and was in what would be a tremendous transition just for me spiritually and psychologically and physically. And, and that's where they found me and started guiding me on my path. Mm, Wonderful. Um, So I really love your voice in the kind of um, Nordic heathen, rune work um because uh you are so um interested in centering the feminine mm-hmm. um so so often rune work is considered a masculine form of magic um but neither of us really believes that's true <laughs> um, <laughs> so can you talk um a little bit about the ways you found the divine feminine i mean your book is uh subtitle it's titled wild soul runes and the subtitle is reawakening the ancestral feminine so Mm -hmm. how have you found this so a lot of a lot of gnosis work of course my my background prior to engaging in the runes I did um you know it was kind of the the women's spirituality path and I know a lot of people don't stop listening if you're, if you're listening here and those, you know, those words can just shut people down. Um, but that was kind of, it was an eclectic, open, spiritual path um, with a lot of ritual. And so that was a big interest of mine. I actually went back to school to study at the California Institute of Integral Studies. 
I was working in their um, philosophy and religion program uh, toward a PhD with a women's spirituality emphasis. And so this came into my lens as I approached heathenry, as I approached the runes, because I, of course, was met with that, like, as if heathenry begins with the Vikings, as if, you know, the pre-Christian spiritualities of Northern Europe start in the medieval era. And that's not true. <laughs> that's, um, that is a place where we have written records, but that is, and, you know, a lot of archaeology, but that is not the place where the story begins. And when you dig deeper into the mythos, when you dig into archaeology, I took a wonderful class called Archaeomythology. So really looking at archaeology alongside, yes, it was so good, alongside uh, the literature and then the myths. And you start to find the feminine everywhere. And of course, clarifying the feminine, not women, but the feminine as quality and quality that exists in everything and everyone alongside the masculine, these qualities, this interplay come together in the story of the rune's origin and become a story of partnership between the masculine and the feminine. Of course, Odin is famous for his desiring and acquisition of feminine wisdom. He very much is consistently seeking to partner with the feminine because there is a, a knowing in those myths about where power lies. It doesn't lie in the exclusion of one or the other quality. It lies in the whole. And unfortunately, through patriarchy, the feminine has been so stripped of its essence, so degraded and dismissed that, um, you know, we, we all are missing the ancestral feminine within us, this incredible quality of power that allows for partnership, that allows for wholeness. And that is where the runes actually in the myth come from. They come from the well of the Norns in partnership with Odin's initiatory sacrifice. So we can't have one without the other. And that is where the runes potency, that's where I find it comes from for me. Um, and just having that awareness in approaching the runes changed everything because suddenly there was a, an opening there for a reweaving of the weird around this idea of the runes belonging to Odin exclusively being this, you know, masculine knowledge <clears throat> and then tracing it back in the archaeology to old European civilization, the sacred script, potentially pre-Indo-European invasion. Um, you know, the runes are very ancient and they tell a story that is much older than patriarchy, much older than um, this exclusionary masculinity that we're used to. I actually have a, a really, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm really curious to talk to you a little bit more about your um, coursework in archaeomythology and that kind of thing, because I uh, have considered that as a path for myself in the past. Uh, but I have been warned by a lot of people that um, if you are practicing heathen or, you know, something like that, it can be a very, you know, um, tense <laughs> Um, situation. So um, 
I don't know. I don't have a specific question for this, but if you feel comfortable kind of speaking on um, some of that like archaeological evidence and how you balance that with personal gnosis, because I think personal gnosis is really, really important for understanding the runes. Absolutely. Yes, 100%. And I think the interplay between the two, I mean, that is where my entire work resides. I often um, begin with gnosis and then I look for the archaeological evidence or I look for the the mythological evidence to support that gnosis. And without direct communication with spirit, how do we have a living spirituality? You know, that's where we've been so robbed by the historical, the written religions from our spiritual sovereignty because it totally removes us from this idea that we have innate connection. Every single person has the ability to receive information. And so in ritual, I begin with Gnosis and then Um, You know, the old European sacred script is a really good example of following my gnosis, this whisper that, okay, if the runes come from the well of the Norns, then they're really old because in the Volo spot says that the, the giantesses emerge from the base of the world tree at the very beginning of time. They're remembered by the vulva who's like one of the oldest beings ever in the, the mythos. So they must be ancient. Where then would we find ancient evidence of the runes? And I had been doing some work with the, the archaeological dig at the nest of Brogger, which I love so much. That uh, whole complex up there is really rich in Neolithic information. And I found a, a drawing of a some, some scratches on a um, what may have been like a everything there is made of stone. So it may have been a doorway or a shelf. And it said next to the scratches, pre-runic writing. And I looked and I was like, oh no, those are runes. And so then tracing that back, I of course was working with, um, in the archaeomythology class with the work of Maria Gambutas and uh, her old European sacred script is all runes. I mean, it's the runes are so present there. And, and that's just an example of how um, then you begin to find these affirmations in the literature. And of course, I uh, started doing my own translations for this reason too, because, um, because the feminine is there. It's very present and it's asking to be remembered, you know, through a lens that is contemporary, that is, gnosis based. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, the notes that you make in the book itself about, um, your translation process and about how it's okay if it's clunky or if it's, you know, not like (laughs) exact, um, is really freeing actually. Right. So like, I actually have the, um, the old Icelandic dictionary, um, that you reference a lot. Oh God. Yay. Yes. With a Z. Yeah. Zuega or Zuega. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I actually have that. So I might begin my own, uh, translation work as well. Um, It's very (laughs) freeing to just be like, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, exact. Um, 
Oh, I'm so thankful for you saying that because that was the whole point. And that has been the biggest point of insecurity for me in putting this book out. And, you know, the spirits were like, no, you just have to do it. And I'm like, but it's bad. (laughs) It's not, you know, it's bad. But I've always been invested in showing my process. Because again, the point is not to like, hand you a path and say, this is the way the point is, here's my path. Maybe you want to try these things too. Maybe then you find your own path. And that is ultimately the goal, because if we all do our own translations, we're going to come up with so much incredible information rather than just relying on these same 19th century translations that are, you know, they're, they're very interpretive, they're very male, and they're very um, Christianized, frankly, and also, you know, linguistically quite beautiful, which the, when you go into direct translation, not that though I'm really interested to see what my Norwegian relatives have to say about my translation. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I actually, uh, think that, I don't know, um, a lot of your work and a lot of, if I were to go into academia myself at this point, a lot of it would be trying to bring those ideas, you know, out, um, into common, like non-academic society. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, you can get this dictionary and you can try to translate on your own. Like, this is not something that you need to be, um, within the ivory tower to be able to do, right. You know, like bringing that information forward because there's so much, um, so much information, uh, that is, kind of kept in these academic libraries that a lot of, you know, contemporary heathens just don't have access to. Yes. And it sort of feeds into that idea of like, oh, contemporary heathens, you know, are wrong, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, that can exist within academic circles. But like, I don't know, I just think that personal gnosis is really, really important. And also like, sharing of knowledge is very, very important and democratizing knowledge. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, most, it's, it's so unfortunate that we don't have the unbroken oral tradition of our ancestors to, to receive the information of the common people. That's why folklore is so vital. um, And folk practices are so, so important to read about because then you get even more information to underlie that gnosis and underlie those academic, you know, the academic source materials. And of course we privilege written information so much, you know, reconstructionists, it's like everything has to be written down, but most of our ancestral information was not written down. Like 99% of it was orally transmitted by common people doing regular gnosis work every single day with the animate world around them and their ancestors. And just remembering that is really empowering. And I I am 100% there. That's why I choose to use the term spiritual sovereignty, because I think it's really important, whatever community you're a part of, to find your own direct relationship. We're so hungry for spiritual authority. Oh, please tell me what to do. Tell me how to be tell me the rituals I need, tell me what the runes mean, like all of these things. 
take us away from our actual lived experience and the lived experience of our ancestors who are inside of us right now in our DNA, ready to give us information every single day, along with the world around us. And that is, that is where I'm at too. And that is what I want to reclaim. And those I know exactly what you're talking about with the academic (laughs) databases, which I used to have access to and I don't anymore, but being able to pick that information out and put it into the commons again, so that we can stop being limited by this, you know, this kind of spiritual gatekeeping um, and the walls of, of academia. I should say too, though, CIS was very welcoming of, my own gnosis work and experiences. And actually the book started as a paper that I wrote for my program there. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, that's really great to hear. Cause I know that there are different levels of, um, you know, different institutions or different uh, professors and people that you can work with have different levels of openness. Yes. So that's really good to hear. Yeah, they were, they were really great. And they're the only accredited program that focuses on women's spirituality. They're very open and inclusive. And I found if I could have sustained the work physically, I would have complete. I tried to go back last year and I just, I am too nonlinear for school, but, (laughs) but I love it so much. (laughs) I I understand. (laughs) Um, let's talk a little bit about the book because it is such a good, um, it's almost, it's like book workbook kind of together, right? It's you kind of helping to facilitate people's journey through and discovering their own gnosis with the runes. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how it's structured and, um, kind of your hopes for the book and, uh, any kind of, um, I don't know if you've had feedback from people about, you know, the the process of going through it, but let's just talk about it. Sure. So the, the book is a a 33 week long practice. I laugh as I say that, because I know that's a really long time, Um, but it's not meant to be linear. You don't have to just, you know, slog your way through 33 weeks, but it's structured as a practice. It actually, so it began as a paper and then became a class that I facilitated starting in 2017 that did go for 33 weeks of um, really doing a very open-ended inquiry-based practice with the runes where you uh, work with one rune a week daily uh, asking it questions in ritual, building uh, an altar to it, um, maybe practicing with some galder or chanting, toning, singing. Um, and then it has a lot of other ancestral practices woven in. These are all from my own lived experience, so they can be adaptable to wherever you're at, whatever your lived experience is. And the attention being to have people come into deep personal relationship with the runes, which I see as living beings. I see them as not as inanimate, you know, tools of divination, but I see them as actually living pieces of the web of weird that were taken up by Odin from the well and can contain so much rich, wonderful information when we come into relationship with them. 
Yeah. So it's funny that um, this interview and this book release happened at this time because I had a really interesting experience a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. um, a couple months ago, actually, um, where I was going to do a rune reading for a client and uh, Nauthies was missing. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> And so it's like, oh, there's a need here. <laughs> so I actually um, ended up texting Kari Toring, my um, teacher locally um, in Runeways. And she was like, oh, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I had been contemplating for years making my own set of runes. Um, and she said, well, seems like you need to do that now. <laughs> Um, so I ended up purchasing a set just because I am a working rune reader. So I have to have like a complete set of runes with me. Um, yes. uh, so I ended up purchasing a set from her husband. And then also he had a bunch of, um, discs already sanded and ready to be wood burned. So I've started going through your book. Um, and I have some own journal prompts from my Radical Runes class um, that I'm teaching again this summer. Um, and I'm journaling through each of the runes as I'm like mm. creating this set. So lovely. Oh, I love that so much. And that that is, yeah, that's such a perfect example of my hope for the process is that folks will just take it and then apply it in your own way, in your own methodology. Um And then you can share with me what you're doing. And then between the two of us, we grow and that information grows. And suddenly the runes are taken out of this, you know, kind of exclusive territory where they mean really specific things and only those things. And they move into more direct relational work. I love that you're making your own set in that way too. That's really beautiful. That has been, um, there was, I had someone message me on Instagram that has done this process. They actually took the, the 33 week long class when it was offered just as an independent study with no gnosis group. And they harvested their own wood, cut their own wood with a knife that they hand forged themselves. And then week by week hand carved the runes and they had just completed their Elder Futhark set. So they still had the Anglo-Northumbrian runes to go. And they sent me a picture. It was made out of three different kinds of wood from the land where they grew up, the land where they were currently living. It was really powerful. And, and that, you, you know, you, you can't buy something like that. Like that is not commercially available, that kind of relationship. You know, when you invest that much time and energy in something, the potency is undeniable. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's really, I, that's really beautiful. Um, mm, Chills. So um, I had a question actually about, um, I pretty much have only worked with the um, the elder Futhark and a little bit with the younger Futhark. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the Northumbrian um, Anglo-Saxon edition, additional Futhark or yes. additional eight. <laughs> additional, well, additional nine, which the, the Anglo-Northumbrian runes, I was just 
because this is where my, I love these runes. I love them. I've always been really drawn to them. They're very powerful. And there's a strange sort of, they're both either maligned and dismissed, or they're like over potentized by people. People are like, oh, these are, you know, the most powerful runes ever, or they're like, I mean, really called extraneous runes, or I've even seen people use the word trash runes, which I think is just so offensive. Yes. That's really disrespectful. It's super disrespectful. But, you know, that's where people get very boxed in with their philosophies. And, you know, I'm not going to deny someone else's gnosis. If you really feel like there's any such thing as a trash rune, you, you know, that is maybe your experience. But, um, I, my experience has been that there's so many more runes than we even know and that are contained in any literature. And the reason that the Anglo Northumbrian runes are questioned is because <clears throat> they appear primarily on, you know, there's only, I think, five that appear in the rune poems, and there's some repetition there, overlap with the Elder Futhark. And then the rest are either in like really kind of random manuscripts or, um, or uh, artifacts. And <clears throat> so they're not, they don't have rune poems. We just have the word that's assigned to the rune and what it means. But I've found being more inclusive in my rune work has been really helpful to me, um, allowing, I've had dreams about runes that are not in any Futhark that aren't, I haven't ever seen. And again, if these are ancient, if these are prehistoric beings from the beginning of time, you know, when you walk in a, in a canyon and you're looking at the layers of the rock and you see all of the runes that are embedded in the stone or um, in the ice when it visits in the wintertime, you see all of the runes included in the ice you realize that there's so much more here than we've made conscious. And there's a lot of potential for transformation. And that's what I see in the Anglo-Northumbrian runes is a lot of mystery and possibility. But I also say, everybody, because they're beings, you're going to have your own relationships with them. And just because they are really powerful for me doesn't mean they're going to be really powerful for you. And that's okay. We don't need to love every single rune and have a really good relationship with all of them. That is, you know, there's a lot of beings there and it also will change through time. That's what I've found is that my relationships with them really shift depending on where I'm at in my life and what we're doing together. So. It's really interesting. So I had a student last fall when I was teaching Radical Runes ask why I didn't include um, the Anglo-Northumbrian runes uh, in my own personal, you know, work in classes and stuff. And first of all, I feel like I don't have a comfortable enough relationship with the Anglo-Northumbrian runes to include them in a class at this point. Um, I just need to, you know, I need to learn them in my own way before I hold space for other people. Absolutely. Um, but the other reason that I kind of gave, uh, when the student asked me this was, um, I haven't worked with them primarily because I don't really have any Anglo ancestry. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so as ancestor practice, for me, the runes are very much like a Norwegian, I, you know, Norwegians in Iceland and uh, Swedish kind of 
um, you know, center. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I don't have that, you know, direct tie, but I think that they are still connected because there were so many um, Nordic people in like (laughs) that region of the world, like the, the contemporary United (laughs) Kingdom, there were so many Nordic people there. So, um, you know, and also there's a linguistic connection, you know, English is my first and only language. So (laughs) like having some kind of connection culturally to, um, you know, that place, uh, the British Isles is important to me. Um, so we'll see when I get to the, uh, week 25 (laughs) 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 in, in this process, like where I go from there, but, um, yeah, I'm excited to kind of dive in. What other resources would you have for people who are curious, um, about the Anglo-Northumbrian runes? That's a difficult one because, uh, you know, when I was introduced to them, I was, you know, given resources that kind of all said the same thing. And this has been my story actually with all of the runes, right? Because you get kind of a lot of repetition in the, in the rune world. Um, So I don't have specific resources. I mean, of course, going to the the direct source, going and looking at the archaeology, looking at the rune poems. I know that doesn't feel like a fast solution, but um, but that is really from from the research that I've done, and for my own gnosis relationship, that is the best place to go is to go to the source and and start to ask questions you know, ask, see what comes up for you as you encounter those source materials, because um, really this, the journey of translation started for me with several runes in, um, in the, the Anglo-Northumbrian set that were being interpreted in ways that I just didn't feel resonant for me. And then when I went and looked up the word, it had nothing to do with the interpretation that I was being taught. And I was like, well, that seems unlikely. <laughs> but I mean, again, <laughs> that's your gnosis and that's great. But for me, the feeling of the rune was really different from the interpretation. And then when I looked up the word, it contained something more akin to my feeling. And And that's why the personal relationship is so important because it doesn't matter what it means to anybody else. It really doesn't. It only matters what it means to you. And and that's where, you know, as readers and diviners, our direct relationship informs so much of the spiritual information that we offer for other people. So that's where everyone can be empowered to come into their own spiritual relationship. And what a relief too, to not have to run to the book and be like, what does that mean? (laughs) Because you can just ask, what are you (laughs) saying to me today? What does this mean in this context? Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's interesting. I'm, I'm going to need to ponder, um, on those for a while. And I need to go back to the source because I haven't done that mm-hmm. for the Anglo-Northumbrian set. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am really excited to talk to you today as well about gender and the runes. Mm-hmm. Um, so we already started sort of talking about, you know, the feminine mysteries of the runes. Um, and 
I think that that's really important. And for me as a non-binary person who was assigned female at birth, um, it was really important for me before I understood that I was non-binary to find the feminine in the runes. And now I'm kind of finding the masculine as well Mm -hmm. um, to try to balance that within myself. How would you recommend that men and perhaps even trans masculine people or um, non-binary people uh, interact with the the feminine side in a supportive way? Um, I think that so often, um, you know, particularly trans uh, trans men and trans mask people are so, um, you know, like it's really important to find and honor masculinity mm-hmm. for them. But also, mm-hmm. you know, let's let's contain a balance, I guess. Um, how would you speak to that? That's such a great question. And actually, I've been thinking about this so much. Um, I used to teach gender studies classes a long time ago. And of course, so much has just cracked open in the last decade around gender. Thank goodness, like we've needed this, right? Yes, and, absolutely. But I, I'll never forget this one class I had where I had the students, we were talking about the masculine and the feminine as qualities. And we have to remember that our contemporary definitions of masculine and feminine are not ancestral. They are informed by thousands of years of patriarchy. So When we think of the masculine, we are thinking about patriarchy's definition of the masculine. When we think about the feminine, we're thinking about patriarchy's definition of the feminine. And I had these students list masculine and feminine qualities on the board. And the masculine qualities filled up the entire board. Like there were so many qualities. And the feminine, there were like, I don't know, five or eight that they could come up with. And they were all really um, degrading, like weak, soft, gentle. I mean, think, I think loving was on there, which was kind of nice, but for the most, it made me, I felt so much grief in that moment because everyone loses when we have that kind of imbalance, we all lose. And I think the invitation in the ancestral feminine is because we're returning to a time of balance. That is what the goal is. We're looking past patriarchy, which you've got to go back real far in these cultures. This is not yesterday. This is thousands and thousands of years. And a lot of the definitions around things like the runes or heathenry, they come from patriarchy. They're very much embracing of patriarchy. But there is a lot of evidence that there were other kinds of cultures that existed in Northern Europe prior to patriarchy. And those threads are really important because they offer all of us, whatever our gender identity opportunities to come into relationship with qualities that we don't even know how to define because we've been so brainwashed by the patriarchal binary. So that is where the reclaiming, whether it's the ancestral masculine or the ancestral feminine coming into new definitions of what those qualities even are, and then allowing for that interplay within us, I think that that applies to everyone. And the runes remember they remember prior to patriarchy. They remember a time of balance between 
all people in interplay between qualities that we can't even maybe imagine, but they still exist within us. And the runes can help us come back into relationship with that. So that's really nonspecific. I know it's like very esoteric, but it is for me always about going back. We have to go back farther. We've told the story that, you know, things have always been this way and men are like this and women are like this and, you know, masculine means this and feminine means this, but none of those stories are true. When you go back far enough, they meant something different and we'll never know for sure, but we can ask our ancestors and we can ask the runes to help us come into more balance. I think another important aspect of it is, you know, even if you are trying to, um, you know, present and connect with your femininity or masculinity, like in the, you know, mundane world, um, and you have a lot of barriers to presenting um, your gender identity the way that you would like to, I think that um, if you're going to read runes for clients, or if you're going to, you know, work with the runes at a community level, you know, holding all of this is really essential. Like being able to be like, I am masculine and the feminine is really important. Yes. Or I am feminine and the masculine is really important, even if it's a different person's expression. Um, And I actually uh, have found that honoring, finding a pre-patriarchal masculinity is incredible. <laughs> like, <Right? laughs> like, what does it mean if you strip masculinity, mm-hmm. if you strip the patriarchy from masculinity, what is oh. left? Mm. Okay. That gives me chills because that, <sighs> what potential, how healing. Yeah. You know, I look, <sighs> I have a, So I have a really um, dynamic and um, interesting family with gender and sexuality. And, um, and we talk a lot about, about the woundings that every single person in this culture carries and, and yeah, reclaiming that coming back into it. What does it even look like? How can we imagine it? Because we can't imagine our way forward from here without having some sense of what existed before. That's where we're, we are desperately missing our roots. And, and again, if the roots are just a story that we've been told over and over again, you know, that's been like whacked into us about what, you know, what the masculine means as defined by patriarchy, what the feminine means as defined by patriarchy, you know, then we're missing the entirety of our humanness, which, you know, or even, even our relationship with the natural world, which has been very much defined by patriarchy, our relationship with spirit, which has been defined by patriarchy. Nothing goes untouched by that. But, you know, when you start pulling the thread, everything unravels <laughs> yes when you start pulling at that thread of weird yes and follow it um 
Yeah, I think that too, uh, you had already mentioned earlier in the interview about um, how Odin is, you know, constantly seeking not just masculine wisdom, but also feminine wisdom Mm -hmm. and how Odin is such a, you know, bringer of the runes to us. Mm -hmm. Um, And even I've read some studies that talk about Odin's gender as a little bit fluid, Mm -hmm. right? Like the way that he or they are referred to in the myths themselves is very fluid. Um, And that's, again, where that translational work comes in, right? Like, you know, understanding the language and understanding, oh, like, there might be something else here that we're not seeing. Yes. Really important. Absolutely. No, I love that. And I, I love that in, in Odin, I love, (laughs) I think reclaiming, reclaiming the, again, the pre, pre, um, even pre-Christianized version of Odin, because so many of the manuscripts have, again, that Christian tinge over them and allowing him to be in his fullness or them to be in their fullness, however that interaction appears. Um, One of the things that came up when I was in school this fall, I learned uh, there's a really wonderful essay um, called The Vanier Mothers Behind the Aesir Veil. And it's in a a collection of um, academic work about goddesses. But what was so interesting to me in this really well-researched essay was they were talking about the evidence for the the Vanir culture, you know, being matristic and, you know, just being really clear that matristic culture is not the like mirror opposite of patriarchy, right? Just in case anyone's questioning, it's very different kind of cultural center. And one of the things that came up in that, because they were looking at the Sami influence uh, on the Northern European culture, and the connectivity between, you know, the pre-Indo-European culture and potentially some Sami influence. And one of the people they interviewed was saying, you know, the Sami have no concept of divinities. They have venerated mythic figures. And there's evidence that, you know, that is more the ancestral consciousness of the North is it wasn't about divinity, something separate from humanity. These were venerated mythic figures that were actually ancestors that were part of a continuity of community and mythic time that we are always in relationship with and always drawing from. And I think that our concept of gods and goddesses has been so divisive and so informed by historical religion that when we come into, I just felt this ease when I was like, oh, Oh, venerated mythic figures. No wonder, you know, no wonder we hang out in the way that we do. No wonder I'm not, you know, supplicated to divinity all the time. You know, it's more conversational and relational for me. And and that really started to change some of my perspective on the gods and goddesses and, and especially Odin, who I have a really interesting relationship with. That's like a whole conversation for another time. But um but that that does change and then and then those dynamic qualities that you are finding between the lines and in translation 
suddenly come to life because, oh, he's not separate from us. He's actually a part of us and in continuity with us because he is an ancestor. That is a beautiful segue into my next question, mm-hmm. um, which is all about ancestral practices um, and particularly about the Desir. So um, who are the Desir and how can we connect with them? So the Desir are often described as female ancestors, um, sometimes described as, you know, Dees is often defined as goddess, um, kinswoman, uh, female relative. Um, I definitely feel the Desir as my feminine kindred. They carry the qualities of the lineage for me, forward and back through time. So when I hang out with them, which I just did a really intensive DCR practice um, a couple of months ago, uh, they they have the wisdom of the weird for the lineage forward and back. So they hold all of the keys to being successful. And by success, we basically mean survival. We're not talking about, you know, like, financial success and well-being. Um, I work with the DCR as, as beloved grandmothers and as gatekeepers. They often assist me when I'm working with other feminine elements like the Norns or like the, um, the Filga and the Haminga in my lineages. Um, and I've also found the DCR to be really useful for weird weaving and weird repair in journeying. Um, so, but I think everyone's DCR are different and who your DCR are, are going to be unique to your lineage and your particular relationships. Um, when I did the DCR practice, I worked with a community of people and it was fascinating to see what came up for people in their independent work with their DCR, um, knowing that they had such an important role in, you know, they're mentioned all the time in literature. They are, um, they are seen as, you know, sometimes being almost like a like a ferocious, like a ferocious protective <laughs> entity. Um, but I, I feel them very much as kindred and as supportive of me in living my life and living my life in such a way that I leave a legacy for the generations to come that is not um, in poor repair, I guess. Yeah. Um, how do you begin to connect with a DCR? Most recent relatives, um, feeling into my beloved dead, the ones closest to me, um, my grandmother, my great grandmother, um, and then starting to ask them questions and following their lineages and learning their histories. And as I've come into knowing more about my genealogy than I've come into knowing more about how to build relationships with, because I'm not just one thing, I'm a lot of different things. So building relationships with the DCR in my various lineages 
It's very, it's so individual though. So if you have an ancestor that you already work with, or if you, um, you know, the, one of the oldest traditions of ancestor work is always the offering, just feeding the ancestors, giving them, you know, time, attention, words, or literal food, literal food and drink and asking them, you know, how can I be of service to you? What do you need from me in this life? And it is incredible how they show up. They, I mean, again, we just did this practice in um, my witch wound healing circle and the dreams and the, uh, they're just waiting because again, and I always hold things as real and not real at the same time. I find that very useful. So the DCR live inside of you along with all of your other ancestors and all you have to do to connect with them is to ask, to say, hi, <laughs> it's me. And I would love to hang out sometime. Yeah, I think it's beautiful that it can be a somewhat informal um, practice to start. And I think that that's a really good, a really good place to start is with the informal in part because I think that a lot of people, um, I, I teach a lot of classes just on general witchcraft and then, you know, my radical runes course. And I think that a lot of students get, um, really self-conscious about, am I doing it right? Yes. You know, just, just talk, you know, just, just open a conversation. That's been the great gift of this path for me, I think, is just realizing that there is no separation between me and spirit. Spirit is with me all the time and with the ancestors that they are with you all the time and that that you don't have to, it's not about like the enormous gestures, it's about the tiny little activities that we do every single day. Those are ancestral activities, feeding ourselves, bathing breathing, um, you know, working outside in the garden, like it doesn't have to be big. And, and, you know, all of this um, staged ceremony again, comes from historical religious context. Um, Even in the ancestral medieval literature, people were wrapping up in a, a skin and going and sitting by a grave mound and listening. So listening to, to my mind, because I can't go visit all of the graves of my ancestors I can sit and listen. And that I think is those simple things, like you said, is such a relief. Yeah. Um, So kind of continuing our exploration of practical, uh, practical work. um, What are some of your favorite ways of connecting with the runes? Mm. Well, I love, I have a, a form of divination that I created that's in the book called uh, Rune Webs. And it's because I'm a, a visual artist. So I really love making rune webs. I have one that I'm working on right now for a baby that was just born. So it's essentially a rune cast. Um, and then uh, working with the runes to draw a snapshot of the web of weird. Um, using the runes that appear in the cast. And, and they turn out so incredible. Everyone is really different. And they can be worked with for such a long time because 
of course, all of the runes make other runes and the web changes and your notice of the web changes over time. So that's one of my favorite ways to work with them in divination practice. But I also love to sing with them. I was just singing them this morning. I love to, you know, they're on my altar. I have <laughs> I have two rune sets. My brother just gave me a set for my birthday that's so beautiful. And I have a set that I made. So I have my like upper runes and lower runes. And I'm always in there and engaging with them in conversation. Um, and it's so fascinating to draw from each set and see what appears you know, the repetition of the runes. I also love to see them, you know, I, I see them everywhere. I'm looking out my window right now and they're in the hazel tree and they're in the garden and they are, you know, they're everywhere. So just being attentive to them on a daily basis. Most of my practices are very simple because I have a disability and I'm energetically pretty limited. So those are, my favorite way is just being in relationship and having awareness of them and knowing that they're communicating with me all the time. I just have to pay attention. Ah, oh, beautiful. So um, as we wind down, is there anything else that you would like to share about your upcoming work um, or share about the book or anything? Um, just what what's coming up for you? <laughs> Well, I also have, I've, I'm teaching a class this summer. I also am teaching a, a rune class and it is meant to be kind of a foundation leading into this practice for people. So it's a six week class, four weeks, we'll have um, some gnosis groups and just really laying the foundation of how do you even begin to get ready for a 33 week long practice? Or, you know, even if you want to take breaks in there, which I do recommend, um, <laughs> how, how to, how to lay the foundation for some of your own personal gnosis work and really build in that trust of your independent relationship with the runes. So that's coming up in June. And then I had to postpone my book launch celebration. So that I think is going to be moved all the way out to Samhain. Just it feels really right to give that spaciousness. And, um, and that will be something that folks can look for because everyone will be invited. And I would love to do a, you know, a community reading and some ritual and just really celebrate this book as five years of my life um, and came through when I was in the midst of a huge health crisis. So it feels like it's really important to honor, honor that. But, and everyone can always find me on Instagram. I'm there at least once a week, <laughs> popping in and out kind of irregularly. Yeah. Um, and I have a Patreon and I have um, my school, which there's some classes at the school that are free and that folks can investigate if they're interested. But that's what's coming. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you. And that is it for today's episode of the Heathen's Journey podcast. 
A huge thank you and shout out to all of my students and patrons for making this work available. If you want to become a patron and support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash northernlightswitch. I post full moon and new moon ritual guides, rune readings for each of the turning of the zodiac season, and so much more. If you would like to follow me in between episodes, you can find me on Instagram at northern.lights.witch or on Twitter at northlightwitch. Until next time, stay weird.